Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. After six years of podcasting, I'm always struck by what captures people's imaginations. From drunken governors of Tasmania to railway robber barons, it can be hard to know what would grab people's attention. Some things have a long hold on the popular mind. Crime is one of the biggest. No, I'm not bitter about the success of the true crime podcast genre compared to us hard-working indie history podcasts. Instead, I was thinking about the enduring appeal of crime, and especially the detective. There is, of course, the one great Victorian detective who looms large over all of us. This show is not about him. Tempting as it is, you have no idea how much I long to dive into Sherlock Holmes. There were already hints of the fictional detective at the start of the Victorian era. Edgar Allan Poe created C. Auguste Dupin. In his murder mystery book, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, in 1841, founding the modern genre. Whilst not the first ever murder mystery, this was really the first to have an independent genius gentleman problem solver. Dupin smokes a pipe, is eccentric, lives with his roommate who acts as the narrator, and solves crimes for the sake of intellectual stimulation to give his superhuman intellect an outlet. My, does that sound familiar? Certainly, Conan Doyle tipped his hat to Poe's creation, saying, quote, Where was the detective's story? Until Poe breathed the breath of life into it. End quote. So, to celebrate the sixth anniversary of the podcast, we are going to look at that mythical figure, the Victorian detective. I can hardly believe it's been six years. So much has been done and covered on the show. It's been a wonderful journey, and I love sharing it with you. Our detective journey, starting with Poe, contained many classic elements, with the murder of two women in a locked room. There were some problems with Poe's first work, though. Notably, that the reader is not allowed to work out who done it. The modern convention is that someone reading a murder mystery should have a chance to figure out who did it, even if they don't get all the details right. Early crime writers like Poe and Conan Doyle would not be as generous. How often does Sherlock Holmes solve a crime by having information arrive at the conclusion by surprise, with sources that a reader can't ever anticipate? In Poe's book, The Murder is impossible for a reasonable person to have guessed, because the actual murderer was an escaped orangutan that was trying to become more human. I guarantee that no one would pick that option on the list of realistic suspects. It is up there with the flash of light seen by witnesses was a time traveller who stepped out and shot Kate, then disappeared. I know 100% I was shortchanged like that, I'd fling the book in the trash. Okay, I admit 
writer John Dixon Carr managed to get away with that kind of thing in The Three Coffins, and he was an exceptional writer. Good read, that one, by the way. What most detective novels and murder mysteries have in common is that the police are incompetent. From Poe to Conan Doyle, up to the present day, the amateur sleuth is left trying to solve a crime because Detective Inspector McStupid forgot how to use his eyeballs. Professional policing was in its infancy in the 1830s and 1840s. The public took a lot of convincing that the police weren't going to be the tool of a repressive state. Remember that the less political power people have, the more vulnerable they are to additional criminal legislation. The Victorian franchise was narrow in the extreme and was realistically an aristocratic oligarchy with some rich industrialists or top military and legal officers sprinkled on top. Everyone else had criminal laws applied to them and they were subject to brutal punishments or deportation. Once you become a criminal, no matter how minor or unfair the offence, it is a millstone around your neck for life. If you want to know who has real power in a society, just look at what is and isn't a crime, and crucially the way it is punished. Stealing food or nappies for desperate children is usually a crime and punished harshly, whereas stealing millions of public money in rigged procurement bids is just talked up to government inefficiency. A good example in the Victorian era was John Thurgood. He left a workhouse which housed homeless paupers who were by definition unemployed and he was looking for work. He was arrested and taken to the magistrates and sentenced to 15 days hard labour for searching for work in workhouse clothes. The Metropolitan Police Act of 1839 was a really big milestone. It sensibly gave a formal role for constables, set out areas of operation and plenty of powers of entry to prevent crime. Being able to shut down pubs on Sundays, gambling dens and combat illegal cock fighting and bear baiting were all understandable goals. There were powers to deal with firearms, possession of large quantities of gunpowder, the prevention of being drunk and disorderly and a lot of public highway provisions. Strangely, they felt the need to criminalise boys knocking on doors and running away and people flying kites. The emphasis was order in the public sphere. The choice of police uniform was deliberate. Dark blue with a smart hat and no guns in contrast with the British red-coated soldier. As Elizabeth Dale notes in her article, when constabulary duties to be done, Dickens and the Metropolitan Police, quote, The Bobby was still a relative newcomer to the London scene when Dickens and collaborator W.H. Wills published their series of admiring police portraits in the household words during the early 1850s. Created in 1829, the centralised police of the metropolis effectively superseded both the idiosyncratic parish policing system and the independent thief-takers, most notably Henry Fielding's Bow Street Runners, affiliated with the law courts. The philosophy behind the new force was preventative policing, 
and it was founded on the assumption that a centralised, highly visible presence would deter potential perpetrators in a language more familiar to the 20th century reader the bobby was expected to walk a beat alert to anything requiring his attention in terms of order maintenance or law enforcement free to conduct reactive investigations in response to citizen complaints he was not authorized to undertake proactive measures like raids stings or undercover work end quote so robert peel was desperately trying to professionalise the criminal justice system and even ran two parliamentary committees on the topic of London policing and plainclothes detectives. The first committee reported against plainclothes detectives. The second committee, in 1828, went so far as to condemn detectives, plainclothes policing, as disgraceful, corrupt and wholly inappropriate for London. Still, in 1829, Peel managed to get his policing bill through Parliament, forcing a uniformed and centrally controlled force onto the city. It lacked detectives and slightly overlapped the Bow Street Runners, but British traditions of liberty and localism were being hacked away by a centralising state. It is easy to assume that the rise of centralisation was a key part in creating a modern professional police service. Historians like Reynolds in the history of the Bobbies have demonstrated that there was a high degree of professionalism in the decentralised local forces. Don't confuse centralisation of power with improved professionalism and performance. They aren't necessarily the same thing. The big driver for change was really the change in cultural standards themselves. The Georgian era was one of vibrant, noisy and casually disordered street life which was not considered as desirable in the Victorian era. The focus on Victorian policing was on public order and protection of property by way of increased police visibility. Honestly though, if you travel back to what the Victorians considered quiet and orderly city street in London you would probably be stunned by the noise, the crowds, the carts, the smells, and the vile, insulting language. They would probably find our modern world almost sterile and slightly sinister with its intrusive surveillance and huge number of rules. You can tell a lot about a society by who it polices the most heavily. Victorian England was especially worried about the Irish. The Irish were seen as more inclined to drinking and therefore more inclined to crime, so were often disproportionately arrested and convicted. Yet it was noted criminality amongst the Irish immigrant community was almost always very low-level petty theft or drink-related disorder with very little serious violence or murder. For many historians and philosophers, the history of crime and prisons is about the power of the state and the ways in which society controls people. Foucault was very influential on this reading of history. Historian Gattrell went so far as to say that the history of crime is largely the history of how better off people control their inferiors. It has the benefit of being witty, somewhat insightful and badly wrong 
all at the same time. It might illustrate the point that powerful states can over-police the population through public order offences, but it doesn't address the areas that are clearly nothing to do with states attempting to control people. Crimes like murder, rape, kidnapping, arson, torture and the like are crimes because of the immense harm they do, not because the state needs to create them as crimes to justify itself or expand its powers. Not all policing can be reactive and done in the daylight. It isn't about keeping protesters out of the way or arresting drunks or breaking trade unions. It is about dealing with these nastier, hidden crimes. These crimes needed another kind of policeman. Today, we are going to have a look at one of the building blocks, the crime fiction genre, and indeed the history of policing, the formation of the Metropolitan Police Detective Branch. Without them, there would be no future Scotland Yard, or at least it would have looked very different. If the opposition to uniformed policing was strong, the opposition to plain-clothed police was even a part of the establishment itself. Strangely enough, the London detective story really begins with what was called police incompetence. This is unfair to the police, not that the Victorian press cared. In early April 1842, a coachman named Daniel Good murdered his common-law wife, Jane Jones. Following the murder, he dismembered the victim's body and attempted to burn her remains. For a day or so, he seemed to have gotten away with it. Good then stole a pair of trousers from a pawnbroker's who reported it. PC Gardner went to investigate Good about the alleged theft. Good was living in the stable and attempted to say to Gardner that he would go and settle the issue of the stolen trousers, claiming it was a mistake. Luckily, PC Gardner was a thorough officer and insisted on a search of the stables. He noticed Good moving some hay in the last stall and forced Good out of the way to allow him to do a deep search. He discovered what he initially thought were animal remains that turned out to be part of a burnt female torso with the arms chopped off. Good did a runner out of the stable, locking the door behind him. The unfortunate Constable Gardner was left locked in a stable with the dismembered corpse. Good was on the run for ten days before he was apprehended. The Metropolitan Police frantically searched for him, but completely failed. Good had fled from London to Kent and was posing as a bricklayer. Luckily, a former police constable from Wandsworth recognised him from newspaper reports. Good was soon arrested by the local police, thrown in jail and escorted back to London. Justice was swift. He had been witnessed by multiple people, selling possessions belonging to the victim, had opportunity for the murder, was unable to provide an alibi, and had been seen by a police officer trying to cover the remains during a search, something he had no reason to know were there unless he knew of the killing, and then he had locked the policeman in the stables and done a runner. He was convicted of murder in the record time by the jury and executed at Newgate Prison on the 23rd of May, 1842. The papers covered the event in full and there was a huge crowd to watch him die. Even the newspapers 
in far-off Sydney and the colony of New South Wales reported on it. Quote, Execution of Daniel Good, the murderer. At eight o'clock on Monday morning, Daniel Good, the murderer, expiated with his life on the scaffold, the awful crime of which a jury of his country had convicted him. The crowd which had assembled to witness the execution was perhaps more numerous than had been seen for many years around the jail of Newgate. A great number of anxious visitants, determined if possible to obtain a good view, were there all night, and at one o'clock the street was quite impassable. From that hour until eight o'clock the crowd momentarily increased, and at that hour it surpassed everything we have ever beheld. The whole street from St. Sepulchre's Church to Ludgate Hill, was one mass of human beings, men, women and children. The house opposite the jail was also crowded with spectators, and high premiums were paid for every spot whence there was the least possibility of beholding the spectacle. After attending divine service on Sunday morning, the wretched culprit caused two letters to be written, one to Molly Good and the other to a Mrs. Spencer. At an early hour on Sunday night, he retired to rest, and slept soundly for two or three hours. He awoke between times in the morning, and partook of a slight breakfast. At six o'clock, Mr. Sheriff McNay went to him, and remained with him nearly an hour. Mr. Carver the Audley was also with him, directly he rose, and never left his side until the fatal bolt was drawn. At half past five o'clock, Mr. Cope, the governor of Newgate, was with him for a short time, when he repeatedly said, Mind, I am no murderer. The sheriffs and their attendants, having entered the condemned cell, and the prisoner having been handed over to their custody, he was conducted to the press room, and sat down on a bench with Mr. Carver on one side of him, and the sheriff on the other. At this time, he appeared to be suffering the greatest mental anguish, and be quite incapable of listening to the exhaustion to repentance to which the worthy divine was desirous of drawing his attention. Seizing Mr. Cope by the hand, he said, Oh, Mr. Cope, my best friend, I never took her life. I declare to God I never took her life. Then, clasping his hands, he said, The Lord had mercy upon me. I hope the Lord will take me and show me the gates of heaven. I never took her life. I never took her life. The Reverend Ordinary again urged him to repentance and confession, reminding him that he was now going to stand before the judge of all. Upon this, the prisoner rose, and elevating his right hand, said, I swear before Almighty God, as I hope for mercy, I never took her life. The Lord be with on all. He then shook hands repeatedly with the sheriffs. Again, did the Reverend Divine exhort him to repent and confess, saying, You know the Bible says, If we confess our sins, God is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. And again, He that hideth his sins shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy, and God will abundantly pardon him. The culprit replied, I should tell you in a moment if I did the act. If I had any weight on my mind, I should unburden it. Why should I tell a lie on departing from this world? At five minutes to eight, he rose from his seat 
and adjusted his dress with the air of a man who was going about his daily occupations. He shook hands several times with the ordinary and the hangman. He then went up to Mr. Cope and, whispering, requested that he would let him have a little wine and water. Nearly a tumbler of wine and water was brought to him and he drank it all off. He then rose and turned up his coat sleeves with the utmost composure, whilst the hangman pinioned his arms and wrists. His neckcloth was removed next, the culprit telling the hangman that there was a pin somewhere which must be removed, for the neckcloth could be untied. His throat was then bared, the bell of the prison began tolling, and the melancholy procession set out, Reverend Ordinary preceding the culprit, and reading in a clear and distinct tone the burial service. The culprit walked with a slow, firm step to the scaffold, and ascended it without hesitation. He glanced hastily round on the immense multitude, and there was a tremendous yell raised, so loud and so fierce as to be sufficient to strike terror into the heart of the stoutest men. At this moment he turned very pale, and trembled much, but said nothing. Scarcely an instant was occupied in adjusting the noose, which having been accomplished, and the cap drawn over his face, the executioner retired from the scaffold. The signal was immediately given, the bolt was withdrawn, and the unhappy man was no longer an inmate of this world. It might be said he died without a struggle and without a groan. At nine o'clock the body was cut down, and conveyed into the prison. End quote. Behind the sensationalism, two people died in fear the innocent victim and then the murderer. Hundreds of people debased themselves, watching the state use its immense power to execute someone. For the Metropolitan Police, this was the latest in a recent string of humiliations being locked in a stable by a killer, then having a retired police officer in another county give the vital info to let a different force arrest the killer. Hardly the London Metropolitan's finest hour, but far from their worst. The fictional Sherlock Holmes would doubtless have considered it par for the course. This level of embarrassment could not be tolerated, and political pressure for a proper detective branch was irresistible. I've covered it in detail so you can see how horrible the crime was also how harsh an execution was, and the instincts of the Victorian public watching it. When we talk about crime, we are really talking about human failures and human emotions. Dickens was a great supporter of the police, especially the detectives. He rhapsodised over them in an article in his journal Household Words, quote, to each division of the force is attached two officers, who, denominated detectives, the staff or headquarters consists of six sergeants and two inspectors. Thus the detective police, of which we hear so much, consists of only 42 individuals, whose duty it is to wear no uniform and to perform the most difficult operations of their craft. They have not only to counteract the machinations of every sort of rascal, whose only means of existence is avowed rascality, but to clear up family mysteries, the investigation of which demands the utmost delicacy and tact. End quote. That's 
not a lot of detectives to cover London, especially as they ended up doing a lot of other government work, like protection duties and even intelligence work. Victorian London was a cesspool of crime in ways barely imaginable today. Modern fear of crime far exceeds the reality and it is clear that in Victorian Britain the fear of crime was also stoked by a thriving publishing industry backed by journalists with few scruples. Still, Victorian London was more crime-ridden and violent than modern London, so the fears were not unfounded. You do need to be careful, though. Crime is not only a legal concept, but a cultural one. Domestic violence or rape within marriage were not seen as criminal acts by the Victorian culture of the day, so lawmakers were not under pressure to criminalise them. Sexual crimes were very different too. The age of consent was extremely low, and brothels hovered on the edge of tolerated, depending on the clientele. There was greater acceptance of violence between people to resolve disputes, and the decline of prosecutions for violence through the 19th century might be partly the result of increasing power of the police in prosecutions and a concurrent decrease in interest in prosecuting such times. A good example of how cultural standards can cause criminalisation is drink driving. At one point until recently, drink driving was legal and perhaps regarded as a bit of a joke. Changes in moral standards went hand in hand with changes in the law and slowly the attitudes hardened till laws became strict and drink drivers were rightly held as social pariahs. The legal culture of Victorian Britain was heavily focused on property rights, hence the early detectives were seen as focused on theft. They were called thief-takers because of Victorian cultural concerns around theft. I should also remind you that crime rates, prosecution rates and conviction rates are not the same. The crime rate is simply the number of cases a government or journalist or police thinks has been committed based on the evidence available. Usually that's based on surveys or initial reports to the police. Measuring it is very hard and it shouldn't be treated as a scientific measure. For instance, imagine a very drunk homeless person in Victorian London turned up at a police station and said that a well-dressed gentleman had ridden him down in the street and horsewhipped him when he complained. He'd lost his daily bread in the dirt and the pipe that he used to play tunes on the street corner for pennies. Without those, he and his daughter might starve. That was technically assault. How do you think that would get recorded in the crime statistics? A very likely outcome is that the man would be shoved out of the station and told to bugger off and sober up. Would the police record it as an assault or even write something down? Just because someone says they were the victim of crime doesn't mean they were. They might believe it, but be wrong. Or they might be lying. Then there's the flip side, the crimes that stay hidden. We've talked about infanticide before on the podcast, and you can be sure mothers weren't reporting that they had killed their child. Then there's the next step, arrest and prosecution. 
Imagine our horse case had somehow ended up on the desk of the detective. He has to find a gentleman on a horse. Okay, that's easy. He has to find the right gentleman on a horse. Without some more evidence, it's going in the file marked pending further investigations. Still, he gets lucky. He notices that the vagrant drinks a particular brand of bourbon. Since bourbon is an American drink, not common in London, the vagrant must have acquired the habit of drinking it from travelling. That must mean he has spent time in America. He is clearly not a writer or a gentleman, so he's probably a sailor. Therefore, he might well have been drunk and able to get a new ship when he finished his last job. A London detective would know the popular DOS houses near the wharves. Also, he would know places nearby that might possibly be of interest to a gentleman, one frequented by ladies fresh off the boat, perhaps. He would have pulled on his battered top hat, grabbed his cane, and headed to the docks to interview people. Perhaps he found a witness or two who mentioned a well-dressed man who visited brothels and had a taste for foreign girls. He had money and dresses well, but was not a proper gentleman. Ah, thinks the detective to himself, a thief with money to burn, who passes himself off as a gentleman to assist in his crimes. More investigations follow. Some unwise flirtation between our square-jawed hero and a smoky-eyed beauty from China. There's an epic rooftop chase if you like that sort of thing. The climax is the detective bringing his prey to ground with a well-placed blow from a cane to the back of the head. The suspect is helped to their cells, where he is ably supported by caring local constables who are concerned at the number of times he keeps falling down the stairs. Okay, I'll stop my Terry Pratchett fan fiction there, but you can imagine how achingly time-consuming this all was. And remember, therefore, police needed to focus on what was considered high-value crime. At this point, you'd need to remember that going to a brothel or even running from the police wasn't a crime. The actual alleged crime was criminal assault. The key question for the police was did they have enough evidence to prosecute and have a realistic prospect of success. Certainly the judicial system of Victorian England wasn't exactly friendly to potential criminals, but it was extremely touchy about the rules of evidence, admissibility, formality and interference with individuals by the state. The English and Welsh legal systems historically required the prosecution to show beyond reasonable doubt that a person was guilty of a crime, usually with intent as well as committing a criminal act. Although some strict liability acts don't require the guilty mind element, as intent is sometimes called, our hypothetical criminal gentleman would almost certainly have put forward a defence to say, I never deliberately rode down the alleged victim. He was drunk and staggered in front of my horse. It was startled and I had to whip it to keep it under control in a crowd. He might have got in the way by mistake. Clearly it's his own fault for being an intemperate drunk, and he suffered no more than the consequences of his own folly. You can immediately see how this will be a defence of fact, and it is hard to say that a properly directed jury would not be willing to accept it. Could a prosecutor prove beyond all reasonable doubt that that wasn't what had actually happened? that a man riding a horse 
Couldn't have been trying their best with a startled animal when a drunk got too close. If the detective knew all this from the start, would he have even bothered with the investigation? Luckily for our fan fiction, the smoky-eyed beauty arrives with new evidence. The man had hidden some stolen property, and she knew where to find it. With a sigh, the detective reached for his top hat. The streets were calling. That's a very long-winded way of saying be very careful about crime statistics. And don't assume low conviction rates mean crimes haven't happened. Don't compare conviction rates with arrest rates or prosecution rates across offences. You need to be sure you are comparing like with like. Compare arrest rates for crime A against crime B, then prosecution rates for crime A against crime B, then conviction rates for crime A against crime B. Don't compare arrest rates for crime A against conviction rates for crime B, and then declare, because the conviction rate for B is lower compared to the number of people arrested and convicted for crime A, that means crime B is taken less seriously. You are mixing up stats and stages of the process and outcomes. Keep like with like. Broadly, we can safely say Victorian London had a much higher crime rate than today. But if you want to know whether there were more murders in Victorian London than today, you would need a very consistent definition of murder and then to compare crime statistics, arrest rates and conviction rates. A cross-reference of a huge number of studies into historical crime rates show that murder rates have plummeted over centuries and the 19th century saw a strong decline. The vast majority of victims of murder and violent crimes are men and this has been surprisingly consistent throughout post-medieval European history. Men are more likely to commit violent crimes, be the victims of violent crimes and more likely to be murdered. Violence has declined precipitously over time and that does not appear to be linked to policing entirely. This means that you should be very careful of the popular narrative that police professionalisation has reduced crime from the Victorian era onwards. Reductions in crime have complex, multifaceted causes. Saying police prevent crime is as simplistic as saying street lighting does. Much more detail is needed to form a judgment. Perhaps street lighting in a narrow alley in London prevents muggers hiding. It does next to nothing in suburban streets as these are not densely populated at night, meaning most criminals hanging around in the dark if the streetlights are off would encounter nothing but owls. Violent crime has been declining for a long time, but you need to factor in improved medicine, better communication technology, decreased carrying of personal weapons, reduced acceptance of personal physical conflict for resolving disputes, and the increased power of the state to monopolise violence, plus better detection and increased likelihood of conviction. You could probably add improved welfare states to that too. When women were more involved in public spaces in Europe in the pre-Victorian era, they were more likely to commit murder, especially in Stockholm for some reason, as women were forced to retreat into the domestic sphere in the mid to late 19th century 
they committed fewer murders. Women continued to be prolific offenders in the property crime sphere, verging on 50% in some times and places. So a Victorian detective investigating a murder would, odds-on, be looking at both a male victim and a male killer, but investigating property crimes would require a far wider scope of perpetrators. The role of the criminal seemed to shift in the Victorian era as Patrick Blantlinger and Donald Ullin noted in their paper Policing Nomads, Discourse and Social Control in Early Victorian England. Quote, Before the Victorian era, the criminal was often represented as a figure of freedom, an individual strong enough to break through social restraints, to bend the law to his or sometimes her will. Supercharged with the charisma of adventure, banditry, rebellion, Jack Shepard, Jonathan Wilde, Dick Turpin, Defoe's Lives of the Pirates, point the way towards Blake's Devils and Byron's Corsairs. But by the 1830s, various forms of surveillance, mapping and scientific explanation made the literary criminal look less like a political rebel than like an object capture, catalogue, diagnose and hopefully tame or reform. As Foucault indicates, the biographies of criminals shifted gradually away from the rogues gallery genres of the Newgate calendar and the condemned man's last words hawked as broadsheets around the public scaffold to the strange semi-privacy or semi-publicity of police dossiers and case studies of the pathologists. In the process from being a symbol of freedom or perhaps free will carried too far, the criminal became the modern delinquent, a character whose every move is a reflex of environment or heredity. End quote. To the Victorian, there was no exciting outlaw or rebel to admire. Pirates were figures of disgust, not exciting individualists, fighting a doomed battle against a remorseless civilization that crushed everyone in a stifling social order. They would think our morality insane with our idolisation of fictional figures like John Wick, Jack Sparrow or Don Corleone. Uniformed policing was supposed to discourage crime from existing in the first place. Brantlinker and Ulin continued, quote, Thieves benefited from the regularity and hence predictability of the old-fashioned constable's rounds as much as from his lantern, which made him an ambulating lighthouse. But in a town watched over by a preventative police, the thief, quote, knows not from what quarter he may expect an enemy, in what part he may safely lurk and deposit his spoil. Hence it seems that the visibility and regularity or orderliness of the old-fashioned constables promotes crime. But to prevent crime, the newfangled police ought to be less visible, less regular, that is, ought to be more like vagrants, and yet only irregular in the sense that they had better comprehend or survey the vagrant system. There will be method in their madness. End quote. Crime was located in the environment, the drink and vagrancy. A slum was seen as quite literally breeding crime. 
there were a bewildering variety of crimes for the police and detectives to be aware of. The journalist Mayhew attempted to classify them in a proper taxonomy of crime. Quote, Those who plunder by manual dexterity, further subdivided between mobsmen and sneaksmen, the latter bifurcates into still more micro-political categories, including such colourful ones as stargazers, or those who cut panes out of shops, swarney hunters, or those who snatch bacon from cheesemongers' shop doors, dead lurkers, or those who steal umbrellas from passages at dusk or on a Sunday afternoon, skinners, or those women who entice children and sailors to go with them and strip them of their clothes, bluey hunters, or those who purloin lead from the tops of houses, and mudlarks, or those who steal pieces of rope and lumps of coal among the vessels at the riverside. Similarly, under mobsmen, occurs the subheading buzzers, the stealers of handkerchiefs and other articles from gentlemen's pockets, and buzzers in turn merits two more subdivisions, stook buzzers, who steal handkerchiefs, and tail buzzers, who steal snuff boxes and purses, end quote. And no, I don't know why it was cheesemongers who were particularly having their bacon stolen, but then again, who can resist a free piece of bacon? Don't think that criminals stayed neatly in one category, or that they did this full-time. People might dip in and out of crime as motive and opportunity changed, so Mayhew's taxonomy was already doomed to failure. The plain clothes detective held a strange position. On the one hand, he was unable to be preventative as he lacked the uniform to discourage crime and acted after the crime. Yet the knowledge that he lurked in the crowd, knew the criminal classes and embodied that random chance, heightened his abilities. The law could always be watching. Yet with so small a number of detectives, using them on the vast numbers of vagrants drunks and petty thieves was a waste, nor could they easily be found and recruited from the common ranks of the police. Senior officers were adamant that detective policing required good education, observational skills, perseverance, tact and even specialist skills. High levels of literacy were prerequisite, rare in the 1840s. Speaking more than one language was almost as vital. Most of the detectives spoke French, and in the case of Superintendent Williamson, Latin. There were detectives who were fluent in German, Greek, Russian, and Italian, all valuable for men who might be involved in watching foreign agents as well as foreign criminals. The detective might start in the ranks, but he had to get noticed to get the increasingly coveted transfer to the detective branch, then do his on-the-job training, learning the streets with a more experienced officer. Still, not all the early detectives came from within the police force. John Hitchens Sanders married a French woman and had lived in France. He was almost native in his French speaking and a crucial asset for the detective branch. He was hired and deployed in the Channel Islands 
to spy on French refugees and travellers. There was no handbook for detectives or prescribed rules and guidance. This was a new world, exciting and innovative. Detectives were encouraged to find ways that got the job done. Many developed encyclopedic knowledge of pawnbrokers, since criminals from petty thieves to murderers used them to raise cash. Prison visits were encouraged so they could recognise frequent criminals. Police sketches, footprint moulds, handwriting analysis and even stakeouts were common features. Tools were identified and matched to marks at the crime scenes. In one famous case, a detective proved that a murderer had staged a break-in to cover her murdering of her younger half-brother. The detective noticed the soil outside the window was damp and should have footprints, but the only prints were from someone who couldn't have been the killer. So, even though the window looked like it had been used to break in, it hadn't. Incidentally, that was used in a Columbo episode. One thing they weren't were alcoholic loose cannons. You've all seen the TV shows The Drunken Detective Inspector and his rough detective sergeant living in a semi-brothel, drinking and bare-knuckle fighting till they are called by a stiff-necked uniformed superintendent to catch a serial killer. I'm going to burst that bubble. There really weren't that many detectives and young, unmarried detectives were required to live in an annex to the station house to ensure they didn't turn to drink and women since it would corrupt them and ruin the work of the detectives. Being a detective was a sought-after post and they didn't like the corruption and drinking of the common ranks. Those who failed to meet the standards were demoted and in one case fired. They were paid more than regular officers and the detective inspectors like D.I. Haynes were on £200 a year in 1842 doubling the average earnings for a middle-class London clerk. It was a tough career, and those who made it to their late forties and mid-fifties retired with broken bodies, but at least they got a pension. In what would become a hallowed tradition, many an early detective retired, and then set themselves up as a private investigator, earning good sums. These rough and eager pioneers would be aided by improvements in criminal science. The use of the new technology of photography gave rise to the earliest mugshots in 1843 and later to a more formal process of sorting criminal records by common descriptive characteristics. No longer would changing a name be enough to be missed among the records. Forensic science made rapid progress, especially in identifying poisons and working on time of death. If the Victorian era was the golden age of the poisoner and the detective, it was made possible by the staggering advances in chemistry. Familiar landmarks sprung up in London, like Nelson's Column and the Brunel Tunnel, along with a lot of famous pubs and theatres. Alan Pinkerton moved to the USA in 1842 and founded his famous detective agency a few years later. By 1858, the use of fingerprints was beginning, along with ballistics and the appearance of those famous horse-drawn black police wagons. Curiously, the police whistle 
wouldn't appear in England until the 1880s. So if you are watching a film set before 1880, the police should have large wooden rattles, not whistles. Most of their work, perhaps 70%, was related to theft cases, but they found time for violent crime, forgery, assault, arson, bigamy, treason, sedition, and, of course, the one you are all really interested in, murder, as Detective Taggart would have said. Perhaps the most famous murder at the time was the so-called Bermondsey Horror of 1849. If you wanted a setting of a decayed slum for a period TV drama, the London Borough of Bermondsey was just the thing. Dickens described it in lurid terms. Quote, Crazy wooden galleries, common to the backs of half a dozen houses, with holes from which to look upon the slime beneath, windows broken and patched, with poles thrust out, on which to dry the linen that was never there, rooms so small, so filthy, so confined, that the air would have seemed too tainted even for the dirt and squalor they sheltered, wooden chambers thrusting themselves out above the mud, and threatening to fall in, as some have done, dirt-besmeared walls and decaying foundations, every repulsive liniment of poverty, every loathsome indication of filth, rot and garbage, all these ornament the banks of Folly Ditch. End quote. If you picture the Victorian Gothic, the macabre and the decayed, this was the place. It was remote from the busy centre of London, and combined with river access, it was ideal for the tannery industry. John Barrow and Sons began a tannery in Wild Rents in 1848, and went on to expand into three tanneries at the Grange. Tanneries are basically factories that slaughter and skin cows, or import cow hides, to temper the hide for manufacturers. It is an industry that requires a lot of dead cows, and used urine as a key part of the tanning process. Bermondsey stank to the heavens, and no one wanted anything to do with it, unless they either owned a tannery or were dirt poor. It was full of open sewers, glue factory and sewage waste, both human and animal. Unsurprisingly, it was hit incredibly hard by the cholera epidemic. It was here Maria Manning settled with her husband Frederick after they fell on hard times and lost their pub. I know what you are thinking, right? Poor Maria is not long for the world. She will capture the imagination of the Victorian gutter press and thus the Bermondsey horror is the tale of another poor woman killed by a violent man. Well, gentle listener, in this case, you will be very wrong. Maria de Roux, later Manning, was from Switzerland and was lady's maid to a wealthy woman. She became involved with Frederick Manning, a railway guard. On a boat trip from England with her employer to Europe, she met the much older Patrick O'Connor. He was a customs officer, and probably a loan shark, with successful investments. On the other hand, young Fred was a little more easily led, and he was supposed to be getting inheritance. Oh, what's a young girl to do? In this case, she chose to marry Fred, but seemed to keep up her sexual fling with O'Connor. 
he often came to dinner, and they seemed to be carrying on their affair, and rubbing Fred's nose in it. Right, you're thinking. Got it. Fred snapped, right? A crime of passion. He killed them both and did a runner to Canada? No, don't keep rushing ahead, my good and kindly audience. What really drove this disaster was that Maria was really, really focused on money. She adored money and hated poverty, which meant she really, really hated Bermondsey. Since Fred turned out to be lying about his inheritance, she was not pleased and was staring real poverty in the face. She came up with a plan. It was too late to marry Connor, so why not invite him to dinner, kill him, and then rob him? To prepare, the couple ordered quicklime to destroy the body and a shovel. They then invited O'Connor to dinner. He arrived with a friend, so the plan was put on hold. Never mind, there's always tomorrow. O'Connor duly turned up the next night for dinner, and as he finished, Maria shot him in the head with a pistol, and then Fred hit him with a pipe to make sure. They then buried him under a prepared flagstone in the kitchen, and looked forward to a more prosperous life. The next morning, Maria went to O'Connor's house and stripped it of gold watches, cash and railway bonds. Unknown to her, she was witnessed visiting the place. Worse for them, O'Connor might have been a violent, hard-drinking loan shark and tax collector, but he had a strong work ethic and was never known to miss a day in his life. His friends duly asked Maria if she had seen him. Nope, she said. Not since that lovely group dinner they had had ages ago. The friends thought it odd, since O'Connor had said he was seeing Maria again the next night. They went off and reported things to the police. Meanwhile, Maria and Fred panicked. They assumed that the visitors were not friends of O'Connor, but were actually some of these new plainclothes detectives. At this point, the wheels were about to come off the wagon. Maria told Fred they needed to get out of town, so he should go and sell their furniture to raise some cash. Once he was out, Maria did what any loving wife and murderess would do and promptly double-crossed her husband. She took all of the cash, gold, shares and anything else valuable, then did a run to Scotland. Fred returned and was furious. But with few options, he debunked with his cash to go on the run. Meanwhile, the police and real detectives had arrived. According to Constable Barnes later at trial, quote, In consequence of information I received on Friday the 17th of August last, I went with Burton to number 3 Miniver Place, Bermondsey. The house was empty. I examined and searched it. Burton had opened the door with a key which he had in his possession. In the back kitchen, my attention was attracted to a damp mark between the edges of the two flagstones. I had heard O'Connor was missing at that time. With Burton's assistance, I removed the stones. There was mortar first under the earth, under the stones, then more earth. The two stones appeared to have been recently removed. I proceeded to remove a portion of the earth. When I had got down about a foot, I discovered the toe of a man. When I got about eighteen inches down, I discovered the loins of a man, the back of a man, at the time, I had sufficiently removed the earth to 
ascertain the position in which the body was lying. It was lying on the belly. The legs were brought up, back and tied around the haunches with strong cord, such as I should think was used as a clothesline. It was quite naked. I proceeded to remove more earth, and at length found the head and other parts forming the entire body. The body was embedded in lime. End quote. The sharp-eyed police had found the body within a few minutes of arriving. It was no longer a missing persons case. It was a murder and a manhunt. Detective Superintendent Haynes was leading the case. They soon had Maria's name and interviewed the cabbie who drove her to the station. Pawnbrokers were interviewed. Incriminating evidence found. Witnesses gathered. Haynes even managed to track down the ticket seller and establish where Maria had gone by train. That's an impressive feat in the days of nameless paper tickets that were paid for in coins. Ironic that today in Britain the police are refusing to attend theft cases even where the Apple tracker tag gives the address for the stolen items. Within a very short time the detective branch was telegraphing police in Scotland to ask them to find Maria. In a stroke of good luck she had actually already been arrested. She had tried to sell some stolen goods including some railway shares and the stockbrokers assumed that any woman with a French accent must be a con artist. Fred was arrested by a detective in Jersey in the Channel Islands following a tip-off. Good detective work led to a trial at which the loving Mannings blamed each other then a solid conviction. What was the end point though of the detective's speedy triumph? Dickens tells us, quote, I was a witness of the execution at Horsemonger Lane this morning. I believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the crowd collected at execution this morning was indescribable. When the two miserable creatures who attracted all this ghastly sight about them were turned quivering into the air, there was no more emotion, no more pity, no more thought that two immortal souls had gone to judgment than if the name of Christ had never been heard in this world. End quote. Naturally, you could buy some lovely souvenir photos of cards of the condemned. These were called murder cards and were considered an interesting conversation starter. I know you're thinking, yes, but why is this called the Bermondsey Horror? I've seen Saw 3 and this isn't even close to that level of chainsaw weirdness. No, certainly it wasn't. But for the Victorians, any label that could be used to sell a paper was good. And the fact that the murderer was a woman and foreign and was having sex with someone besides her husband were more than enough to elevate it to something interesting. Otherwise, how would you sell those lovely souvenir photocards? Dickens wrote to the Times to condemn the practice of public executions. Quote, I believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of the immense crowd could be imagined by no man and be presented in no heathen land under the sun. Thieves, prostitutes, ruffians and vagabonds of every kind with every variety of offensive behaviour. Bitings, faintings, brutal jokes, demonstrations of indecent delight when swooning women were dragged from the crowd. A man had cause to be ashamed, end quote. What these last two quotes show 
is to capture the heart of why we don't execute people. It's not really about the victim or the criminal. It is firstly that the state, with its near already limitless power, should never have the power of life or death over people. And secondly, because executions degrade us as people. They drag us down to the level of revenge seekers and voyeurs of the damned. For me, the great lesson being learned by the early Victorian detectives was to make law and order professional and impersonal rather than the previous days of the personal, vengeful and bloodthirsty. Lessons we forget at our peril. I hope you've enjoyed the anniversary special. It always staggers me how long the podcast has been going and I'm thrilled to be journeying through the Victorian era with you. So here's to many more years. Obviously, there were a huge number of famous murder cases I could have picked, some of which actually probably were much worse. But at least now, you have a flavour of the birth of the Victorian detective in the 1840s. He will become an increasing presence in society and in fiction as we move forward. Thank you once again for sharing the journey. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ageofvictoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.